Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Whenever you hear people talking about their favorite evangelists, a name that will quite frequently surface to the top is Noel Scott. This sermon was taken from the archives of Clinton Camp in Clinton, Pennsylvania from 1995, and it's titled, What Wilt Thou Have Me to Do? I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful message. Praise the Lord. Well, that's my prayer tonight and throughout the camp, and I trust it is yours also. Would you mind to stand with me? You've been seated quite a while just for a brief word of prayer in the closing moments of this service that the Holy Spirit will be honored. Father, we thank Thee that Thou art here. We don't feel we have to ask You to come, but to acknowledge that Thou art present Now as we fellowship around the word for a little time tonight, we pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired it to be written will inspire it to be preached and to be received into our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This chapter opens with a portrait of a man under conviction, a man named Saul who had seen a saint die. He is now breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the enemies of the Lord, putting in prison and persecuting, according to this chapter and three other or two other references in the Bible, persecuting both men and women. I believe he's a man under conviction because since the day that one of God's wonderful chosen ones had died and Saul had witnessed it, I believe there was a battle going on within. Sometimes people get worse instead of getting better or before they get better when old time conviction comes. Now we find Saul breathing out, threatening and slaughter. You can fairly see the smoke coming out of his nostrils as he continues to fight both an inward and an outward battle. But the good part about it is the Lord knew where he was all the time. He was on a journey now to Damascus, about 150 miles from Jerusalem, about as far as an individual could travel between Sabbaths He was making his journey and almost to Damascus when suddenly God turns the lights on. I'm glad God knows where people are. There's some I'm praying for and some that you're praying for. God knows where they are and he knows just the right time 
to turn the lights on. Saul is now nearing Damascus when the lights come on. We do not know whether he was walking or whether he was riding a beast, but whichever it was, the scripture said he falls to the earth and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now there's a thought here that isn't really part of the message, but I think it's something we shouldn't let slip by. When the Lord asked the question, why persecutest thou me? I ask you the question, what had Saul ever done against the Lord? We'll pause now for station identification. <laughs> the answer is Saul had never done anything against the Lord. He had never seen the Lord. He had never met the Lord. Yet the Lord says, why persecutest thou me? There's a thought here that's very precious to my heart. That God so identifies himself with his children. That when you touch one of them, you touch him. Say, I better be careful how I treat one of God's children. I better be careful what I say about one of God's children. Because when I touch them, I touch him. I don't want to be guilty of touching the Lord in that kind of manner till I bring hurt and heartache to him. Really, we don't get very far criticizing other people's children even. I, you won't get a long ways with me criticizing mine. Now, they may need it, but it's not your assignment. And it might be that some of God's children need some straightening up, but it's not my assignment or yours. The blessed Holy Ghost will take care of that one. So when he said, why persecutest thou me? He tells us how closely he identifies with us. And there's not a hurt that we have that he doesn't feel also. That helps me tonight to know that our Lord is that close to every one of us and what a privilege it is to be his children. But let me hurry on through the, the narrative here to pick up the point I want to at least share tonight. Because when the Lord said, why persecutest thou me? Saul said, who art thou, Lord? And I want to specifically give attention to this word, Lord. And some Bible scholars at least believe that there's a difference between the way the word Lord is used in verse number five and how it's used in verse number six. For at this point, apparently Saul did not yet know who it was that was speaking to him. Who art thou, Lord? And some Bible scholars believe it might well be translated, who are you, sir? It was a title of respect. That's the first way we'll use it tonight. Lord is a title of respect. Say, I thank God for people that have respect for holy things, even if they're not a Christian. There's some areas of the country I like to visit that's just old-fashioned enough that they still have respect for God's day and God's man and God's house, even though they're not serving the Lord. I'm glad there's people that feel that way about it. So many areas of the country these days, they've lost respect for God's house, for God's day, for God's man, for God's will. 
We're living in an awful day of departure from the foundations on which our nation was built. It was used here first, I say, as a title of respect. But I want to hurry on tonight. Not only was it used as a title of respect, but in verse 6 when he uses the word Lord, he takes the word Lord from the end of the question and brings it up to the beginning of the question because when he said, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord identified himself to Saul. I'm glad when people really want to find the Lord, God will still identify himself to them. Blessed be his name. I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now there's such a change comes over Saul. No longer breathing out threatening and slaughter, but now trembling and astonished. It's a blessed day in anyone's life when they meet the master and tremble in his presence. For now he says, Lord. And I believe he uses it in a knowledgeable way now. Let me just mention three ways in which Saul um, uses it. I believe now it's a word of recognition. Not just respect, but now he recognizes the Lord for whom he is. Say it's a blessed day in any of our lives when we hear him speak and we recognize him for who he is. I think in this connection of Saul, and I just mentioned it very, or rather Samuel, and I just mentioned it very briefly. You know, sometimes spiritually discerning people see the hand of God on a young person before they recognize the special work that God has for them to do. I remember at the age of what, 13 years of age, when a man of God laid his hand on my shoulder and said, Noel, you have the ear, not marks of a preacher. I didn't know God was going to call me to preach. I didn't know it was his will. But I'm glad spiritually discerning people often see that in the lives of young people. In the case of Samuel, the Bible says all Israel knew that Samuel was going to be a prophet. Samuel didn't know it yet. But the people did. And one night while Saul lay in his bed, he hears that voice. Samuel. Samuel thinks it's Eli. You remember and runs in and says, yes, what do you want? Sam, or Eli said, I didn't speak. Go back and lie down. Again, Samuel. He goes back to Eli. And I believe the third time he goes back. And by this time, Samuel or Eli recognizes it must be the voice of the Lord. And he said, Samuel, you go back and lie down. And when you hear that voice again, you say, speak, Lord. Thy servant heareth. Oh, that was sound advice. I don't know if Eli still knew the Lord at that point or not. He had backslidden and failed so miserably in some areas. But he had enough remembrance of the speaking of God that he thought, Surely it's God talking to Samuel. Oh, I want to live that close, Brother Pierpoint, where I know it's his voice. I don't want to just depend on what someone else tells. I want to live close enough. You know, someone said uh, a while back that God wasn't calling people very much anymore, and someone else said maybe we're not living in calling distance. I want to live close enough till I hear that voice. Friend, 
We don't pass this way more than once. We've got to do it right the first time. And I won't be able to do it right unless I'm tuned in to the right frequency and recognize that voice. You know, there's a distinctiveness about voice. Just as evident as there are fingerprints, there are voice prints that can identify an individual and I want to know how to identify the voice of the Lord. A word of recognition. And I believe Saul now recognized who it was he was dealing with. But not only was it a title of respect and a word of recognition, but I would submit tonight that it was also a voice of resignation. Lord. Friend, when you call him Lord... It implies you have resigned to his lordship. That you have climbed down off the throne of your own self-government and put him on that throne. Somebody has said there is in the heart of every one of us one cross, one throne. And either Christ is on the cross and we're on the throne or else we climb down off of that throne and say, you take it. And we say, I'll take the cross. It's a blessed day when we resign to the authority and lordship of Christ. And it's still true as it always has been. He'll be Lord of all or he can't be Lord at all. He's not looking for a place but the place. The supreme place in my life and my heart. And I believe to every Christian sometime along the way. Often when we're seeking holiness, I believe there is a test of obedience that God brings every one of us to. And when we pass that test, we know, God knows, and I believe even the devil knows, there isn't anything else he could ask us to do. But what that yes is already implied in that great yes we've already said. My good friend Ernie Trotter told the story of an event that took place in the ministry of, of uh, Charles Spurgeon there in, uh, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England. The last time we were in London, we had the privilege, uh, Betty and I, of going by that great tabernacle where thousands used to throng to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. I, I'm almost tempted to get off course here. You remember reading that story of where those six or seven seminary students had graduated and it was summertime and before they went out to preach on their assignment they wanted to go hear the great Charles Spurgeon it was a hot July day and as they were ap approaching the church they met another individual coming from another direction you remember and uh, the other man was very cordial and kind and met the young men and said would you like to see the heating plant of this church well, on a sweltering July day, they were not that interested in seeing the heating plant. But to be kind and to be cordial to the gentleman, whomever he was, they didn't know. They said, yes, we'd be glad to see the heating plant. And the gentleman took them down the stairs and flew open, pushed open two great doors. And there were hundreds of people on their face before God in prayer. And it was Charles Spurgeon that was showing them around. He said, this is the heating plant for this church. 
Oh, that's the kind of heating plant we need for every camp meeting at every church if we're going to see the glory of God move in our midst as we need to see him. But to what I started to tell you, this happened in those wonderful days when Charles Spurgeon was preaching to the thousands. He had preached that day, and now the great throngs had left, and the building was empty, except far to the back of the building there lingered a young lady perhaps 22, 23 years of age. She was seated. She was leaning forward. She had her arm on the back of the pew in front of her and her head resting on her arm, and she was weeping. Mr. Spurgeon, thinking she might be in some trouble, went up to her and said, My dear lady, is there some way I could help you? She looked up through tears, eyes brimming with tears. She said, oh, sir, God is asking me to do something. And she said, I just can't do it. Mr. Spurgeon did not answer her verbally, but took a little slip of paper out of his pocket and a pen and he wrote on the little slip of paper three words from Scripture. Not so, Lord. Do you remember where those words come from? It's also in the book of Acts. I think it's in the very next chapter, in fact. When uh, Peter was on the housetop waiting for a meal to be prepared, maybe he had, uh, maybe he had hypo hypoglycemia, I don't know, but he fell into a trance, the Bible says, while he waited for that meal. God gave him a vision, you remember, of a great sheet let down from heaven, held by the four corners. And in that sheet was all manner of beasts and creatures. And there was a voice calling, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter spoke those words, Not so, Lord. Peter said in so many words, Lord, you forget, I'm a Jew. I've got some scruples about what I eat. And that vision was repeated three times. And we understand the, the message God was trying to get to Peter. There's some Gentiles that need the gospel. We understand that. But those are the three words that Spurgeon wrote on the slip of paper and he showed them to the young lady. And he pointed out to her the utter incompatibility of those words. They just don't go together. If you say not so, you can't call him Lord. And if you call him Lord, you can't say not so. They just don't go together. And friend, they still don't go together. Don't call him Lord if you're refusing to do what he's asking. You're Lord if that's what you're doing, not him. And he said to the young lady, you say God is asking you to do something. And you say you just can't do it. He said you take this slip of paper and either you mark out the word Lord and keep the words not so. Or mark out the words not so. 
and keep the word Lord. Am I making myself clear? He left the slip of paper with her and was gone into another part of the building for a time. And when he came back, the young woman was gone. But there at the pew where she had knelt, there was a pool of tears. And beside the pool of tears was a slip of paper. She had marked out the words, not so. I tell you, it's a wonderful day, friend, when we mark out the words, not so. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow. Lead me to Calvary. Let me hurry to the final way the word is used. It's not only a title of respect and a word of recognition and a word of resignation, but it's also a word of responsibility. For he asked, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now that was a perceptive question. Whatever gave Saul the idea there was something to do? The same thing that happens to every person that prays through. The first thing they want to know is, what can I do for him that has done everything for me? It was a perceptive question. It was a pertinent question. There was something. God did have an assignment for Saul. And God has one for me and for you. And it was a personal question. What wilt thou have me to do? And Brother Hobbs, as I thought on this message... I felt like the Lord wanted us to bring it right down to this camp meeting. For there's responsibility for every person here. We use it rather lightly sometimes that we're 100% willing, you know, 90%, 10% are willing to work and the other 90% are willing to let them. But friend, there is responsibility on every one of us tonight. Sure, there was an assignment for Saul. He said, what will you have me to do? The Lord said, arise and go into the city. It shall be shown thee what thou must do. Aren't you glad St. Paul finished the work that God gave him to do? Where would we be had it not been for a St. Paul that received the assignment and finished it? But just as Saul had a definite assignment. I believe God has one for every one of us here. I believe from the oldest to the youngest, from the least to the greatest. And friend, I believe this so, so completely. I believe that there's a work that God has for every one of us so strongly that I believe that nobody else can do that particular work like you could do it if you were fully obeying the Lord there's a few things the Lord's helped me to do, but there's some other situations I feel so awkward. 
in the sick room. I don't know what to say and I don't know exactly how to comfort. But someone else knows how to walk in that room. They know how to moisten the brow or the lips and fluff the pillow. You tell me that's not a ministry. It's a ministry. Some can work with little children. Some can work, walk or work with the senior citizens. A few rare people can work with any age group. But God has a ministry for every one of us. And I believe right here in this camp, God has an assignment. Now, I don't know the man's name that's been riding that bucket that goes up in the air to fix the electricity, but I know that's not my calling. I can't do that one. And... Uh, You'd be in bad shape if I was in charge of the cooking <laughs> or the housekeeping. Sister Scott might say amen there. But I have an assignment here. But you have one too. And could I just mention two assignments that I believe God has for every one of us here in this camp meeting? Assignment number one, I believe God assigns us to pray. God does nothing in the spiritual realm, Wesley said, except in answer to prayer. And I'm convinced the battle is not won or lost behind this pulpit. It is won or lost in the prayer closet. I remember as a child when camp meeting came to our town. We had a camp meeting one year in my town. The next year was 18 miles away in the town where my wife lived. Lowry City, Appleton City. Lowry City was my town, Appleton City was hers. This year, it was to be in Appleton City, 18 miles away. On prayer meeting night, just before camp started, I heard my wife, I heard my mother get up and testify God has asked me, she said, to be an intercessor in this camp meeting. And I remember as a child, Brother Pierpoint, that word intercessor caught my attention. I didn't know what it meant. I was just a child. And I wondered what it was that God was asking my mother to do. In those years... We had a prayer and praise service ahead of the morning preaching. And I heard my mother testify at camp meeting in the prayer and praise. God has asked me to be an intercessor. And I wondered again in my childish heart, what is it that God's asking my mother to do? I did observe she missed several meals in that camp meeting. She wasn't around visiting as much as was normal. In that little camp meeting where there never would have been any more than 200 in the largest service, there were 70-some souls that prayed through that year and numbers were called into the ministry. My mother was not the only one praying. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm suggesting that God is looking for people that will take that assignment I suppose if I would confess to you what I feel my greatest need, it's help in the area of prayer. I don't feel I've developed like I should have in knowing how to really pray things to pass as it's possible for it to do. 
but I have some burdens and I have some loved ones. Could I say this? I'm going past 9 o'clock and I'm conscious of it, but I feel like I have to deliver this. I don't know if you'll agree with this or not. I don't know if others have observed it. But it seems to me that since the change of the decade into the 90s, there has been a fierceness to the battle and a fierceness of attacks of the enemy against God's people and churches and Bible schools and families like I've never known before. And friend, I'm convinced that our only answer to this, while we may learn good things from seminars and other things like that, I believe an undertaking of God in answer to prayer is the only thing that can turn the tide. So may I suggest tonight the first assignment that God has for every one of us is prayer. That will determine the depth of our praying will determine the outreach and the effectiveness of this camp. The second one, and I know these are so elementary and so simple, but the other one is obey. Really, there's no use to pray unless we're going to obey. And friends, sometimes the key to a service is not always in the hands of the evangelist. Sometimes it's an obedience in the pew and we need, to, we need to slough off any tightness or, or lack of freedom till we will obey God. I know what the devil says. He'll suggest, well, you shouldn't do that because of this. But friend, if we're not going to obey God, we might as well fold up and go home tonight. It's obedience. I, I was reminded as I was preparing for the message tonight of an event that took place in the life of Brother Emmert. Uh, not H.C., J. Lewis Emmert. I think a lot of you know Brother Emmert. I count him one of my closest friends, and I, I regard him so highly in the Lord. Been a pastor for over 50 years. God has wonderfully used him, and he's kept the fire on him right on down to old age. But he told about being out calling one day. In a, he was pastoring in El Reno, Texas, and he said he was uh, calling in an area that he wasn't real familiar with the area, but it was getting almost to five o'clock. And he thought, well, people are starting their evening meal, not a good time to make additional calls. So he thought, I'm just gonna drive home. And as he was driving through this residential area to, of which he was not very familiar, he said he was approaching an intersection when the Holy Ghost spoke to him just one word, stop. And involuntarily he slammed on the brakes, not understanding the voice. And the Spirit seemed to indicate, I want you to go back to this house right over here. Brother Emmert had no idea who lived there. And I guess Brother Emmert's about as human as the rest of us. He wondered, well, is this really of the Lord or... Am I just getting an impression from somewhere else? But he said it was on him so strongly to go back to that house. Even though after he drove around the block a time or two to decide whether to or not, he said, I was afraid not to do it. 
And he pulled into the drive, parked his car, went to the door and rang the doorbell. And a man came to the door. And he said, I'm Reverend Emmert. And he named the church that he pastored. And when he said, I'm a pastor, the man inside the house put his hands to his head and dropped his head and shook it and said, my God, he said, you do care after all, don't you? And Brother Emmert had no idea why that man was saying that. But that man that lived there was a backslidden holiness preacher. His life had come apart. I don't know the details. Home broken. I don't know all that was wrong. But he was at the end of himself. And that very morning, he had loaded a revolver with the intention of committing suicide. He had gone as far as he could go. But before doing so, he prayed one prayer. He said, Lord, if you still care and if there's any hope for me, he said, send some preacher to this door before six o'clock. What if Brother Emmert hadn't obeyed that impression of the Spirit? The same thing that may have happened many other times when people failed. Probably the next morning the Tulsa world would have carried a little one-column article about a death at a certain home by self-inflicted gunshots. But there was a man of God that the Lord could lay his hand on his shoulder and say, turn aside here, go out of your way. So often we're so intent on our own pursuits and our own plans. We don't have time and are not sensitive enough to that still, small voice of the Spirit. It may be that many of us have a memory somewhere hidden away where you felt an impression of the Spirit to do something and you failed to obey it. I have one at the age of 12, I was standing in the alley behind my father's store and down at the end of the alley, I saw the old town dentist, an aged man now. And in my boyish heart of 12, I fell out to go speak to Dr. Twilliger about his soul. But I let timidity and fear keep me from doing it. Several months later, when I got word that Dr. Twilliger had taken his own life, you know what I thought about. It might not have changed what happened if I'd obeyed, but my hands would have been clear. And friend, I don't know what assignments God may have for any one of us. There may be some phone calls. There may be some restitutions. There may be some invitations. I don't know what obediences that God may have for us. But I approach this camp meeting with a sense of responsibility that I will give an account. You will give an account. 
Lord, what will thou have me to do? And I wonder if all of us could report for duty tonight. Lord, you're captain of this army. You're the leader of this camp. What's my assignment? I wonder if our musician would mind to come and play a verse of have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I'm the clay. And I tell you what I'd like to do tonight. I'd like to close this service with just a few moments around the altar. If we're willing to report for duty and say, Lord, whatever my assignment is, by your grace, I'll do it. Could we stand together? Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the fire. I don't want to lose the fire.